0: Hi, everybody, Cora here. Welcome back to Revon Air, the Revon On podcast, and a new episode in our collaborative series with Farmer's Footprint on the power of regeneration to help people and the planet. For the 10th episode in our regenerative series, I get to speak to Todd White, founder of the organic wine company Dry Farm Wines. As a wine lover myself, this is such a fun and educational conversation that reaches across the notions of pleasure and joy all the way through to the use of glyphosate and other toxins even I wasn't aware of that are in conventional wines. I can't wait to share this conversation with you all, but first, a quick thank you to our sponsors of today's episode, EcoCart and Vivo Barefoot. The average customer lacks access to information that could help them estimate the carbon footprint of the items they purchase, even though four out of five consumers say climate impact is a factor in who they decide to purchase with. Dane Baker and Peter Twomey recognized this missing information and created EcoCart as a solution. EcoCart has already empowered over 2,000 brands to embark on their climate positive journey. Their innovative carbon offsetting tool seamlessly integrates with e-commerce brands' checkout pages to calculate carbon emissions and then enables either merchants or shoppers, or both, to pay to offset those emissions. EcoCart firmly believes that companies should reduce carbon emissions in addition to offsetting, and also provides brands with insightful life cycle analysis to further enhance their environmental impact. EcoCart exists to lower the barrier to entry for e-commerce brands wanting to become more climate friendly. We here at Rev believe hugely in the power of reducing carbon at every step along a brand's journey, and this is a tool that can help with that whilst educating consumers at the same time, which we love, EcoCart helps companies transparently tell their sustainability story to align with their customers' values. So go to ecocart.io, that's E-C-O-C-A-R-T dot I-O, to book a demo. And if you hop on a call with them, they'll cover the cost to offset a day's worth of carbon emissions from your online store, if you mention Revolver. And also thank you to Vivo Barefoot, which is more than just a footwear line, but shoes that I honestly can say are game changing when it comes to natural living. They are on a mission to reconnect people into the natural world and human natural potential from the ground up, foot by foot, person by person with their incredible B-Core certified shoes. Vivo Barefoot was founded by modern day cobblers Galahad and Asher Clark, two cousins from seven generations of cobblers. They've traveled the world and worked with its best shoemakers, modern and indigenous. After all that exploring, they came back to the beginning, to the principle of barefoot design and the original purpose of shoes, simply protection from cuts, cold and heat. They're on a quest to make the perfect footwear because the less shoes we make, the better it is for our feet, human movement, and planetary health. Get 15% off your first Vivo Barefoot order with the code R-E-V-E-N-V-E rt15 at vo barefoot.com that's v-i-v-o-b-a-r-e-f-o-o-t.com so now on to my wonderful conversation with todd of dry farm wines like so many of us todd was a wine lover but also a very mindful and conscious consumer who was really serious about his personal health as he started to learn about more about conventional wine, he had more trepidation about drinking it, and more of a desire to source organic wine made in regenerative ways. Some of the things he learned? That only 5% of all vineyards in the world are organically farmed. Grapes have been shown to contain significant level of pesticides. In an annual ranking of produce, with the highest levels of pesticides called Dirty Dozen, grapes were the 8th worst. In the United States, there are 76 winemaking additives approved by the FDA, but wine companies aren't required to disclose their ingredients or additives, so you actually have no way of knowing what's in your wine. Some of the additives are harmless, but others are far more toxic. The most dangerous one, which we discussed today, is dimethyl-dicarbonate, which is strongly toxic to humans in its raw form. Preservatives and defoaming agents provide winemakers a lot of control over the winemaking process and are commonly used as well, whilst additives and GMOs allow wine companies to scale their production to meet demand. Todd knew that there had to be a better wine industry for people and the planet, and not finding it with ease, he set out to start Dry Farm Wines. He came up with his own certification for finding the purest natural wines on the planet. This included a strict set of criteria. Only organically farmed, sugar-free, additive-free, lower alcohol, lower sulfite, lab-tested wines. All of their growers use organic, regenerative, and dry farming practices, no pesticides, herbicides, or any other sides ever. And they work with small-scale European farmers who are mostly family-run with deep respect for the earth they tend. Today, Todd and I deep dive into all of this, as well as covering things like health, joy, and community, things both him and I believe are benefits of wine that is made and enjoyed in harmony with nature. I can't wait for you all to listen. This is a great one to consider as we move into the holiday season in particular. So now over to my conversation with Todd. So Todd, thank you so much for joining me for this Farmer's Footprint Collaborative Series. I am very excited to deep dive into the wine industry and what I've personally learned um, now being involved with Farmer's Footprint and working with you guys at Dry Farm Wines. um, I thought I knew a lot about sort of wines and organic farming and I realized I did not. So I'm excited to deep dive into this as a as a wine lover and, um, an organic farming lover. So I know that you sort of grew up in a setting where you were introduced to organic farming and, you know, beautiful taste and all of these things at a young age. So do you want to tell us a little bit about your, your life that sort of brought you into this world of eventually starting dry farm wines?
1: Yeah, so I was always, as a child, always fascinated with taste. And I was lucky enough, I had this grandmother who was like an amazing cook. She also had, you know, an organic garden, apple trees, and lived on this property where, you know, it was just sort of a magical place with woods. And I was very interested in being outside, and I was very interested in in nature, and um, still remain very interested in being in green spaces. I love flora. Um, And so, you know, but she really was a great influence. She was also, you know, an international tastemaker. She was she was imported fine um, English prints from London into this, into her very obscure uh, but beautiful shop in North Carolina of all places. So anyway, really super interesting. She had this organic garden and she composted before I even knew what composting was, right? And so it was, you know, it was just sort of a natural transition. I was obsessed with taste my entire life, particularly as a child. My parents would accuse me of ordering the most expensive thing in a restaurant, which was oftentimes true because I equated that as being the best thing on the menu, right? And so it was, and then, you know, as an adult, I mean, remained, Obsessed with food and taste and cooking, and consequently, wine. And so, after a lifetime of really being a wine aficionado, I, in my 50s, I got it became obvious to me I'd been biohacking for a couple of decades. And, you know, that's how I met Zach, uh, was through the biohacking and a health world the what I'll call New World health, not old Western health, but new world health of new world thought about you know what impact that toxic farming and, and environmental environmental uh, toxins and you know food and all the things that we consume. And when I say consume, I, I mean we talk about living a life of conscious consumption. That means everything we consume from media to food, to drink, anything that can be consumed or experienced by our senses are all affected stress levels, people not spending enough time in nature. I mean, the list is long, you know, of all the uh, assaults that we make on each other as humans. Uh, most, most, most of it, unfortunately, is uh, propelled by, you know, the pursuit of money and greed. Right. And so wine is a great example of that. As an example, only 5% of wines in the world are organically farmed. We're the largest importer of organic wines in the world. In California, it's only 4%. Now, I'm going to share a whole bunch of kind of crazy and shocking facts with you about the wine industry and about wine and about farming. It's important to know that all of these things are available on a Google search. 4% California vineyards being organic and grape farming is the Department of Agriculture in California publishes that, Mm. right? They track organic versus non-organic growing by fruit category. So they have one for table grapes, they have one for wine grapes, wine grapes is 4% is organic. That's just a shocking number to most people to think that 96% of all the wines grown in California, 96% are farmed with toxic chemicals. And glyphosate, um is the number one applied herbicide to u.s vineyards and in addition to you know the name of our company is dry farm wines we don't allow the use of the irrigation in any wines that are grown for us so in california less than one percent of vineyards are irrigated and the reason i mentioned that about both organic farming and dry farming this illustrates uh how money and greed have driven these decisions that don't result in better for you or better for the planet wine. They result in wines that can be made faster and cheaper and with more profit. And so that's, you know, that that's the center. And in, in, in America, it's, it's a little bit different in Europe, but Europe is catching on and Europe is westernizing or Americanizing um at a very rapid pace particularly in the last 20 years but um uh, but it's still and nobody scales like Americans like we like to have things at scale right we like to scale everything fast with high margin and these business leaders who you know are compensated as a result of this performance you know have, very low self-awareness and very low consciousness about the impact that it has on other humans. We think that's wrong. And so, you know, we, we are not the richest people in the, on the planet. We're not like trying to be, I don't need to go to Mars. Right. We're, we're trying to do something we believe in. We are doing something we believe in. We're super grateful to make a decent career and a decent living, doing something we believe in something we love for people who love what we do. Right. And so that's, that's really kind of our story. And, you know, I got to know Zach through the new world health movement and his interest in glyphosate and our interest in chemical free farming. It just seemed to be a great alignment.
0: Yeah, it is. And I mean, you know, I think luckily we've, we've touched so much upon glyphosate in this series that I think most people do have a very good understanding of it, but something that, I did want to ask that people might not have a great understanding about is what exactly the term natural wine means. Because, you know, we've talked a lot about greenwashing on this podcast. I just had Richard from Flamingo Estate come on and really speak about the beauty industry. And he was like, my God, they're just slapping natural on everything. Um, And, you know, he was very aware of that because he was aware of what they were going through creating products for Flamingo that are actually using regenerative farms and, you know, yada, yada, yada. So just in that same vein, and for people who might be curious about how you guys define natural wine, how the term natural wine can be used in a way that maybe you wouldn't agree with, you know, can you speak a little bit about that? Because I feel like it is sort of this broader term now that maybe does need to be defined in the lens of how you guys are working or how farmers footprint might define it. You know, I feel like it might be a little bit more strict there.
1: Yeah, let me first say on Richard that, you know, there's very few people in the world I admire as much as the work that Richard has done, particularly with the intersection of uh, beauty and uh, creative media and his messaging he he just he's an extraordinary talent you can probably see from behind me I'm, I'm an art collector and you know love beautiful things and richard has been a hyper hyper success at um at the creation of beautiful things that are functionally good right and i really have a lot of respect for that because he's he's a real leader in that space and we we admire him a lot
0: you guys natural are, w- are coming out right next to each other. so Oh, nice. <laughs> nice. nice.
1: Nice. I'll be sure to watch his. Maybe he'll watch mine. Yeah. Um, we uh, follow each other on Instagram, I think. Yeah. Uh, so uh, we've actually been to a couple of his events. But anyhow, so natural wine is a wildly confusing term. We- we're even thinking about stop using it. We don't know. We- we're thinking about it just because it's confusing to people. People say, what do you do? I say, well, I sell natural wine. And they're like, they're very confused because they're like, well, aren't all wines natural? And I was like, well, no, they're not. Yeah. But let's talk about what natural wine is in a moment. But I want to address your question as it relates to sort of the standard and understanding of what natural wine means. Because it's not presently, see, in food, as you mentioned, or, or in beauty, as he mentioned, The word natural is really a way to confuse people into believing it could be organic or something that there's something um, elevated about it, right? The word of the use of the word natural in food is actually a negative from my point of view and virtually everything else. But as it relates to wine, it's a little bit different. And I also get asked the question, is it being abused or people calling natural wines not really natural? The answer is no, not yet. So um, the movement remains very small and very, um, it's very self-pleased. Yeah. Right. And so all natural wines are always organic or biodynamically farmed, 100%. Uh, the movement, there is an international understanding. Not my opinion, not someone else's opinion. There is an, a universal international understanding of what the term natural wine means within the wine movement. And there are three pillars of a natural wine. I'll describe those for you and then we'll get into why, you know we're not you know, we're not seeing um, you know we're not seeing the kind of abuse that you might would expect yet. Yes. Uh, I don't know that it will happen, but we, we haven't seen, there are a couple of natural wine producers that we believe produce too much wine in order to meet our standards. Like we're a little bit dubious of the amount of wine that they, that they, uh um, that they produce. And as a result, we won't buy their wines because we can't fully vet them. Right. right? There's only, it's like two in the world. Um, And so, and we have, we along with everybody else have a very strict standard of what natural wine is. And those three pillars are, and they're internationally understood. And France this year will be the first country to certify natural wine. Oh, wow. So, Dry Farm Wines, my company, has the most stringent, strongest wine certification in the world. And it goes way beyond just being natural because we care about other things other than just being natural, Mm -hmm. being natural wine. But the three quarter, the three uh, uh, cornerstones are: natural wine is always organically or biodynamically farmed. Biodynamic farming is a prescriptive form of prescriptive advanced form of organic farming. We don't—you can easily research it online—but it's it's a prescriptive form of organic farming. Number two: natural wines are always fermented with wild native yeast, mm-hmm. and what that means is that and conventional wines are not, and I'll tell you why. So what this means is that on the skin of every wine grape in the world, at the time of harvest, I don't care how or where it was grown, it has yeast on the skin. And that yeast is is natively, it's called native indigenous yeast because it's wild to the vineyard where the grape is grown. The yeast comes from surrounding flora and it blows by the grape, and it collects on the berry. It's a white waxy film. You can scrape it off with your fingernail. It's actually wild native yeast. And so conventional conventional wines don't use this native yeast as their source of fermentation because it's unstable. You can't make wine in very large volumes. Uh, Alcohol levels get too high. It will actually kill the native yeast. So instead, they use GMO, lab cultured yeast that have been modified to withstand higher alcohol environments. They've been modified to be very sturdy and strong. And you can make wine in super high volumes with it. And it's always robust and dependent because it's been made in a lab. It's been genetically modified. Mm
0: -hmm. It's
1: called lab cultured yeast. That's what commercial wines are made with. So, um, and then number three, natural wines are additive free. And this is kind of the problem other than toxic farming the other problem with with conventional wines and this is true whether you pay $15 or $150 uh, for a bottle there are 76 additives approved by the U.S. government in the United States for the use in winemaking now in fairness a few of them are natural but quite a few are not natural and quite a few are toxic. So of the 76 additives that the government approves for the use in winemaking, it's also interesting to note before I get to the 76 additives that the federal government, their oversight of the wine industry, uniquely wine and spirits is not by the FDA, it's by the TTB. PTB stands for the Trade and Tax Bureau. And the Trade and Tax Bureau is a division of the Treasury Department. See, if if spirits and wine were overseen by a regulatory agency like the FDA, ingredients label and nutritional information would be required on the bottle. Mm -hmm. We'll get back to that in a moment. Because all FDA products are required to have both contents and nutritional information on them. Mm -hmm. Because wine is regulated by the Treasury Department who doesn't, the Treasury Department has no expertise in food, co- food or beverage contents or, or health hazard. The Treasury Department, their primary goal, their mission in life is to generate tax dollars. So they're not here to help regulate what's good or bad for you. They're here to sell alcohol to generate tax dollars. So the whole thing is misaligned. Same thing is true with food, with the Department of Agriculture has oversight over MyPlate.gov, what used to be the old food pyramid, which promotes grains, right? Because the Agricultural Department's mission is to sell grains, right? It's not to be your health advisor. Yeah. So naturally they tell you that Cheerios are more, uh, healthy than an avocado, which is kind of shocking, but true. It's not true that it's healthier. It's true that that's what they say. Yeah. Right. So, you know, these of these seventy-six additives, twelve of them are classified as health hazards by the Institutes of of Health, which is a government agency. Mm-hmm. The National Institutes of Health, as a chemical database, is called PubChem that classifies and rates and dissects all known chemicals in the United States. This is a government agency. Twelve of the 76 are classified as health hazards by the National Institutes of Health. Two are acute toxins, including the most dangerous additive to wine called dimethyl dicarbonate, which is used to treat the single uh, most common bacterial fault in wine known as bretomyces. So, which if present in wine, leaves an off-putting aromatic and taste in the wine, and you solve this bacterial infection by using this very highly toxic chemical. So two are acute toxins, four are made, are required to be made from six different animal organs including pig pancreas and cow stomach and other unappealing animal organs. That's important if you're a vegan or if you care about, you know, animal rights. Um, and so, or if you just don't want animal organ derivatives in your wine, right?
0: Fair enough. So, <laughs> yeah. so the, you
1: know, the the other thing that can happen in wine um is that wine can have ochratoxin A, which is a carcinogenic mycotoxin in it. Our wines are lab tested for okra toxin A because all wines in Europe are lab tested for ochratoxin A. It's required by law. In the United States, they do not require, and no wines are tested for mycotoxins, including ochratoxin A. It's a big deal in coffee as well, mm-hmm. where you have mold in coffee. Mm-hmm. Same thing in wine. Gets in a little bit different way, but... It's the same, it's the same toxin. So here's the wine industry's response to this. And we'll get back to labeling and transparency in a moment, as I promised. But the wine industry's response to all this, because they're really unhappy with me, as you might guess, they're, you know, I've told a few million people about this. And so, you know, their their response is quite simply, look, the doses, the, the poisons in the dose, you know, these toxins in farming uh which by the way uh chemical residue you know this the um, environmental group that produces the dirty dozen which is the top dozen most in their view dangerous fruits and vegetables that have the, the highest residual amounts of toxins from chemical farming Grapes are number eight. They used to be number six. Mm -hmm. So again, as it relates to toxic farming, so in the United States, 96% of all vineyards are are farmed with these toxic chemicals. So as it relates to toxic farming and as it relates to these additives, the wine industry's response is the same on both topics. Mm -hmm. They say very simply, look, there's not enough residual chemicals, these toxins from farming and wine to be harmful to humans. Uh, These additives that we're putting in, these chemicals that go into wine, there's also not enough of those in the wine to be harmful to humans. Now there's no scientific studies to support one position or the other. There's no scientific studies to say that these chemicals residually from farming or from additives are not harmful or they are harmful there's no science to support that here's my position on it and why i started this company and why lots of people love our wine my position is very simple i don't care whether you think that they're harmful or not harmful if i can drink wine that tastes better that makes me feel better that is better for the planet and does not contain any of these toxins and is affordable, I'll make that choice, right? So we don't have to have any kind of long running debate of which there's no science to support one position or the other. We don't have to have some long running public debate about whether these whether these compounds are harmful or not. I just say, if I have a choice to live without them and to drink wine without them, I wanna make that choice. Right, And so that's sort of our simple position on that. Let me come back to labeling for a moment because this is really important. And we are advocates and very involved in advocating for transparent labeling on wine bottles. We believe every wine bottle should have an ingredients label on it and a nutritional panel. And our wine labels today contain both it took us over a year to get that approved by the government. They didn't want us to do it. But here's the thing. The wine industry has spent millions of dollars in lobby money. And their chief lobbyist in Washington, D.C., where money is exchanged for special interest favors, their, their leading lobbyist is called Wine America. If you go to Wine America's website and you look under their legislative priorities, you will find that they publicly um, uh, condemn the idea of having transparent labeling on a wine. They do not want ingredients or nutritional information on a wine bottle. And they take a public position against it. And the two reasons, the chief lobby group, the two reasons that they state that we can send you links to all of this stuff, right? The toxins, the additives, the Wine America link or people can research it on online for themselves, or they can go to our website where it's all aggregated um, in an easy to use format.
0: We'll put links to that below, Todd, for sure.
1: Nice. So the reason that this lobby group states that they're opposed to transparent ingredient and nutritional information on a wine bottle. Now think about this. The reason they're opposed to it are two reasons. One. There's not enough real estate on the bottle for it. Now, uh, this makes no sense at all. There is contents and nutritional information on packages a fraction of the size of a wine bottle. A fraction.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, like a candy bar or mm-hmm. you know, a fraction of the size of a wine bottle. That makes absolutely no sense at all. And the second reason they don't want transparent labeling, if you'll believe this, it will be confusing to consumers. I think mean, this is a publicly stated position. <laughs> you are not smart enough to figure out how to read a contents and nutritional panel. Right, right? you're going to be confused by it. I mean, are you kidding me? It's so, shocking. this is how business is done in Washington. So that's you know, and we're we we are supportive and and involved in a we're we're not a direct. Involved, but we're involved with an organization in Washington called the Center for Public, the Center for Science and Public Interest. And they are the nonprofit in Washington that is responsible for most of all the good things that you see on food labeling now. 19 years ago, they filed a petition with the Treasury Department, again, who oversees wine regulation and spirits. They filed a petition, 16 pages. Filled with scientific sites, 19 years ago, with the Treasury Department, it sat dormant in the Treasury Department files for uh, 19 years until last October. The CSPI filed a federal lawsuit against the Treasury Department over transparent labeling on wine bottles, and we're a part of that. Uh, we're a part of that that argument and that process of helping people understand that yeah. all this nonsense that uh, these special interest groups advocate for is ridiculous and is doing a grave disservice and a and a health harm to uh, to consumers who are being misinformed and not informed about what they're really drinking. We think that's wrong yeah uh, and uh, the other thing the wine industry says, and then we'll move on to something else. but the other yeah. thing the wine Motherhood. industry says about, the other thing the wine industry says about me, because um, I'm like public enemy number one, because uh, I'm articulate, I'm informed, I'm factual, and they don't like it. Right. And so, you know, what they say is <laughs> they'll say this in press interviews when, you know, when they talk about me, they'll say, oh, this guy just wants to sell wine. Guilty. Yes, I'm in the wine business. Let me freely admit I love selling wine, and I make a a decent living doing something I believe in, something I love for people who love what I do. Guilty, I am here, and I do like to sell wine, but that's not what this is about at all. This is about had I known what I'm telling you years earlier, I could have had a more positive impact on my health and my life as a wine drinker. And so, you know, I don't. If you don't get wine from me, that's fine. We would appreciate the support. Thank you. I'm guilty of selling it, Mm. but that being said, what I really want to do is educate people so they're as outraged as I am about it. A, B, you know, they they have informed choices. If you want to drink glyphosate or if you want to drink dimethyl dicarbonate, knock yourself out. I just don't want to drink it, and I think you should have that choice. And if you don't get natural wine from me, if you live in a major city, they're natural wine retailers now or, you know, buy it from somebody else. But, you know, what you don't get when you get it somewhere else is you don't get the dry farm wine certification. So the dry farm wine certification. Yes, I want to sell wine. Guilty as charged. I want to be freely transparent about that. It's like my disclosure. Yes, I sell wine. But, you know, it's like these these scientists, you know, they get up and give their disclosures before I talk. Yes, I'm in the wine business and I like selling it, so please buy it. But the dry farm wine certification um, is way beyond natural. Natural is just where it begins, meaning organic farming, native yeast fermentation, and no additives. But it's also sugar-free. It's also lower in alcohol. Mm -hmm. It's also dry farmed. None of these are all characteristics of all natural wines, Mm -hmm. right? And so... Um, uh, you know, we do, we do independent lab testing. You can see all of what we do on our, our website, but it's, and and because we're, you know, we are super committed to this way of life, you know, of health and fitness. And we walk the talk and we're super authentic about who we are, right? Mm-hmm. So people trust us to, about the wine. So we vet the wines. We know all the farmers. I mentioned to you, there's two wine companies we won't do business with that. Make natural wine, um but from our view, they just make too much of it mm. right and we can't fully vet that this isn't they're too large for us to fully vet that they would meet all of our criteria. so we just make the choice not to sell their wine right Everybody else we you know we if we can't properly vet it, we don't sell it uh because we're super serious. I drink a lot of wine. I'm super serious about what I drink I'm super serious about what I think you should be drinking,
0: yeah,
1: so um.
0: And yeah, that's, yeah. It's so interesting, it, Todd. I'm just, I want to, because I want to pick up on that, actually, going back to Richard. I literally recorded with him yesterday, so it's in front of mine. But you talking about the fact that you think they make too much wine, you know, Richard was told, he just recently went to LVMH about getting funding for Flamingo, and they really said something quite fascinating to him, which was they didn't think it was going to work because he was talking about scaling scarcity, he they were like it's inherently a problem that you want to scale using all small scale regenerative teeny ish farms and you can't scale scarcity and he has his own take on that that everyone will hear in his podcast but you know it's it's come up a lot in this series with farmers footprint because we are talking to brands and companies and CEOs and founders who are inherently taking on this issue of like, how do we make an economy work with all small scale farms or, you know, can we have big business that is successful using only biodynamic farming or at the end of the day, is it always just going to sort of peak at a certain level where it's like, you know, we can't make enough wine for the demand, or we can't support any more farmers, or our margins are going to get too small if we keep doing it this way. So given that you guys have, you know, actually gone ahead and made that decision that, you know, you actually won't even work with people that are making, in your opinion, like too much wine. How do you think about that? Because I know that a lot of people that listen to this podcast are Budding entrepreneurs or people that are already in the sustainability space thinking about business, and I'm just curious as as to what your take on that is.
1: I don't know. I don't know, Richard, but I would assume it's maybe somewhat similar. Um, and it's pretty simple for me. Um, we believe that uh, further expansion of high-quality farming practices like organic and biodynamic farming. If there's a marketplace for that that grows, more people will convert their land into regenerative practices. Uh, That's already happening. Uh, As it relates to LVMH, uh, look, I I give them a lot of credit for what they've done. Uh, And he became the richest man in the world over it. But And they do manufacture a scarcity Scarcity. So, you know, they can pop out a bunch of purses if they wanted to, you know, they, they use scarcity to prop pricing up and the perception of scarcity. And I'm a customer of theirs, I might add. Um, And I spend a lot of money with some of their brands, buying things quickly before they're gone, because that's the business model they've created. And, and I give them a lot of credit for it. But I don't think Richard or I want to be the richest person in the world. Uh, I just don't think that's where our values are. And I give them a lot, I give them a ton of credit. i I am fascinated by what they've done as a business person. Um, I'm fascinated with their obsessive culture of reinvention and their obsessive culture of quality. They make high quality things which I pay money for, right? But that's a different business model. I don't need to be a billionaire. Uh, I want to make a comfortable living doing something I believe in something I love, and doing it for people who love what I do. And I get paid well for that. I'm not the richest guy in the room. I hope I'm usually the most interesting. But, you know, I'm not the richest. And I, I just That's not my ambition. Yeah. You know, my ambition is to do something I believe in. And my ambition is to leave the world a better place than I found it. Yeah. And, you know, I'm, not, I'm just not interested in the obsessive generation of extravagant wealth. That's just not what drives me. If it did, I'd be in a different business. You know, what drives me is solving problems. Yeah. Right. And I've solved one that's important to my audience and my audience of people who care about what I care about is big enough for me to make a fine living. And, you know, the people, I careers I support around me and the farmers that I support, we all make a fine living doing something we think matters. And so for me, that's, you know, is that scalable? Well, to a certain extent, no. As an example, dry farm wines, you can only get our wines from us. We don't sell to stores or, 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 or we don't sell to retailers or restaurants because we can't get enough wine. Could we make more money? Potentially, but that's not how we think about things. We don't think about quality of life uh, in, in terms or the quality of our business in terms of how much money we make because we make enough to be comfortable. We think of it in terms of how can we create an obsessively better product and an obsessively better contribution of service and experience to our customers and members, and how can we create a, a community that is healthier, uh, that is that is serving something greater than the simple pursuit of the American dollar. I, I just think that's a really, I just think that's a really simple-minded idea. And if you want to make a bunch of money, I don't recommend you get in the wine business, (laughs) right? I mean, so if you want to make a bunch of money, there's lots of ways to do that. But being in the wine business is not one of them usually, right? LVMH has done something, again, that's different in spirits and wine. I mean, they own Don Perignon. They own, um, you know, a couple of vaulted Napa Valley vineyards. that These bottles sell for hundreds of dollars a a bottle. And and they market it based on scarcity and you know, it's not available to simple mortal humans like us, right? So that's a different business model that supports what they do in the way that they do it. And again, I don't take anything away from them. Uh, And I have immense respect for the entire family. I have immense respect for the way he has managed his children. I have immense respect for the way he has structured his succession. I know a lot about them. and, and again, I freely admit to having give them a, a bunch of money, right, <laughs> in pursuit of high quality, fine crafted uh, apparel, generally speaking in my case. Uh, but, but we're not, I'm not, I don't aspire to be them, right? I aspire to be me. And I think that's good enough. And I think what we're doing matters. And I think what they're doing matters too. I support it. I freely admit to supporting it. No, I, I don't drink their beverages. Yeah. But but you know I've, I I went to a tasting recently. I, I got invited to a VIP LVMH event in Miami. Um I wasn't there I'm not their VIP customer. I went as a guest um of one of their VIP customers and had a fascinating champagne tasting, right? And uh, it was um you know it was Dom and it was great and vintage champagnes and they, you know, interesting, not something I aspire to drink, but, you know, but it was, it was nice enough. So I don't take anything away from those, that, that family and all, all, I think it's fascinating what they've done. It's just not who I am. And I don't expect it's who Richard is, right? I don't know him, but, you know, I do think that, um, that you can scale businesses like his and like mine that it can be scaled into a greater impact, right? Uh, and and the creation of, of more net worth, if that's your goal, right? I, I think that's possible. It's never going to be ubiquitous because you can't get enough farmers to participate uh, quickly enough to make it a ubiquitous practice. There's just too many forces against it, not in my lifetime anyway, but what you are seeing and what he's seen certainly in the purveyors that he works with in California what he has seen is an increase in the number of these people who meet his particular farming criteria right and there used to be 10 now there's 200 yeah. or whatever right over the course of you know the last 25 years you know it used to be like maybe 30 now there's 300 mm-hmm. right the farmers markets have prolificated. the 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 way of life the the the, the point of view right? This is a point of view about how you want to live, what you want to contribute, how the change, you know, living the change and being the change you want to see in the world. Yeah. And leaving a leaving a better impact behind you.
0: It is. It's t- it is changing. You know, it's like right before we got on, I was speaking to our marketing director who's at home in Santa Monica and she was like, sorry, I've got to pop to the farmer's market. And I was like, oh no, have a great time, you know, speak to you in a bit. And it's just, I was thinking, I was kind of chuckling to myself like, after we got off that I was like, you know, I'm so glad that we're starting to live in this world where like a 26 year old girl is like, you know, going to the farmer's market is an important moment in her day and, and something that like she goes and actively does. And I feel like we are feeling this movement of change. And I think it kind of leads me nicely to ask a little bit, cause I, I'm asking sort of everyone that comes on to speak to this, I still do think that there is a huge disconnect between the average consumer or urban dweller and understanding what the different farms look like, right? Like why this really matters. Like my husband and I, we were just in LA and we were in Santa Barbara and we were at this incredible small scale regenerative farm. And then we were driving down the PCH and we went through this farmland that was like conventional. And it was like, huge chemical. Like we had to, we put up the windows automatically. It was like, hold your breath. I mean, just acres and acres of spraying chemicals, tilling up land that was so dry that the dust was just going everywhere. And then, you know, it was a really hot day. It was like a hundred degrees. All the farm workers were just out in the middle of this sun and there's no, no trees no biodiversity no nothing so these farm workers have absolutely no shade i couldn't see a shady spot for miles you know around us and i was like you know oh my god if more people sort of understood that their food or their wine could be grown on this farm or that farm and they could actually see it and they could actually understand the impact then i think like the needle would move a lot faster but we so often do not see these things in our day-to-day lives. And as someone who kind of goes to all the farms, vets all of your producers, can you tell us a little bit about what the farms are like with the dry farm wine community? You know, like what, what are your farms like versus, you know, the hundreds of acres of farmland in California getting sprayed with glyphosate, like
1: just paint. Yeah, well, I mean, first, first of all, they're, they're very small. Uh, they'll be like, 10 hectare or, you know, which is like 18 acres, you know, like they're very small yeah. and they're usually multi-generational, not always, but usually this is a way of life. Mm. These are like hippies, yeah. right? They're, 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 they would otherwise be known as, as advocate as um, um, you know, they're, they're virtually activists see in their communities. In Europe, you have wine appellations, um, a lot of them, right? And appellations have rules. And these rules are, you know, decades or sometimes century old, Mm -hmm. right? Uh, And organic farming was largely viewed as kind of a weird thing, right? And so you would have these, these farmers who were being ostracized in their communities for making wines that, that didn't contain any additives and were organically farmed. And, you know, in these wine communities, in these Appalachians, they would have harvest parties. And this is, you know, oftentimes these families, historically, not as much now, you know, historically they were ostracized and not included in community events because their farming practices were thought to be strange and also even thought to be a risk to neighboring farms, if you didn't control things with chemicals, you know, was was considered to be, at one point, considered to be a potential risk. Things are a little bit different now, but I hear these stories historically about how ostracized some of the families were. But they're not, you know, I, 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 I think of it this way. When you go to the farmer's market, and uh, I think of organic farming, um, really in two ways. I think of it as small family farming. That's what you see at the farmer's market. Mm-hmm. The fruits and vegetables are so vivid and mm-hmm. beautiful and the veins in the cabbage or the cauliflower leaves or you want to take photographs of them. They're so beautiful. Yeah. But when you go into an organic grocery store, that's not what you see because that's that's organic farming at more scale very different when you have the love and the spiritual connection to a living soil that you have on a small family farm. There's, and so and when you go to the farmer's market, you can look at these people and you can see a glow about them, right? And you can see that they're just hippies and not trying to make a bunch of money. They're trying to live a lifestyle they believe in, right? And one that they love. And that's what makes them tick, Well, there's no question that those fruits and vegetables that are more beautiful, they also taste better, right? And the same thing is true of these small family farms that make these handcrafted natural wines, right? So they look exactly the same. They're just like kind of these hippies that live out in the middle of nowhere, you know, and it's a little bit different in Europe because... The heritage practices, the grandmother's always in the kitchen. She's like 80 or 90 years old, right? And she's cooking and and there's a way of life there that is, you know, centuries old. Mm-hmm. I mean, Europeans have been making wine for 3,000 years, long before we even thought about being a country, right? And so it's, there. there's just, there's a cultural heritage there that is very, when you go visit, yeah, I used to live in Napa Valley. And it's a beautiful and amazing place to live. Uh, and I have a lot of friends there, some of them who make some of this wine I don't drink. Yeah. Right. But, but uh, I lived there, had a great life. And I highly recommend anybody who hasn't been there should go because this is an absolutely stunning place. But um, uh, when you go to Napa and you go to a tasting room, you're going to drive down Highway 29, which is the most famous kind of road in. In Napa Valley. And on Highway 29, you're going to see these architecturally important and stunning tasting rooms. And you're going to drive in, you're going to park, and you're going to go into the tasting room for a tasting. And basically, you're going to have sort of a merchandised um, uh, sales experience uh, in this beautiful architectural gym, right? With lots of beautiful things and luxurious finishes and so on and so forth. And you'll find this in other parts of the world, like in Bordeaux or certain places in Burgundy. You'll find this kind of thing that goes on. Mm-hmm. When you go to visit a natural wine farm, there is no tasting room. If you taste, when you do taste, it'll be either in the cellar where wines are fermenting or it will be at their kitchen table. There's not this concept of, like a fancy tasting room, the very first thing that you do is that you go to the vineyard with the farmer, right? Because he's not a winemaker. He's a wine grower. He's a farmer. He believes what I believe. The inherent quality of the fruit, which is why organic farming and dry farming matter, the organic, the, 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 the inherent quality and character of the fruit, that's going to determine everything about the taste of the wine right? And so there's very little you can do naturally from the time you harvest and ferment a grape to impact the way it tastes. You're working basically with indigenous yeast, which is already on the skin of the grape and the grape juice itself. That's all there is, right? And so the quality and character of the fruit is super important. So as a result, and because farmers sell most of their wine in the winter when they can't be farming. You know, we end up in Europe much of the winter, which is very cold and snowy and wet and windy and let me repeat, very cold in Central Europe. So, but the very first thing the farmer does, no matter what the weather condition, the very first thing the farmer does is take you to the vineyard and want to talk about the soil and the shit, the rock, the type of mineral content uh the volcanic uh, composure of the soil they pick the soil up, put it in their hands, they want you to touch it. they want to talk about living soil you know they they talk about farming, they talk about soil, soil, and soil mm-hmm. right so they, there's no that you, you don't stop to taste any wines you don't you go directly to the vineyard because that's all they want to talk about. Yes. That's what they believe deeply in is the cultivation of living soils. Yeah. These are not, they don't think about regenerative farming. That's a fancy term to them, right? They think about the life of things that live below the surface of the earth. They think about the organisms. That's the reason most of them rarely plow. Because when you plow, what happens is you turn over the topsoil and you expose billions of organisms to the sun and it kills them, right? Right. And so the reason that they plant cover crops in the winter, which is that locks in nitrogen and, uh, like fava beans and other, uh, nitrogen rich, uh, bean and, and, products that, that then when they cut the cover crop down, it locks moisture into without, cause they don't have irrigation. It locks in, it creates a, a kind of a vapor lock of moisture in the soil. And it also releases nitrogen from these beans and that's part of the food source for for the plants. Yeah. So it's it's just a very you know who they are is what they are. You know that they, they they are just super just very conscious. They live a very without knowing it because they don't live in a world where they talk about consciousness. Many of them do talk about spirituality and their spiritual connected source of energy to, to the earth, but they don't talk about consciousness. That's sort of a California word. Right. But, but they're super conscious. Yeah. You know, they live a very elevated conscious life without really knowing it. Yeah. You know, because they're just doing something that comes very natural to them. Yeah. You know, they don't know how to think about things in other ways. They just, they're farmers, right. It's just what they do. It is. And it's just how they grew up and their children are in their footprint and their children will go on to manage the farm and manage this way of life as they age.
0: Yeah. You know, and it's funny, Todd, it, it leads me really nicely into the last sort of topic I wanted to approach. And, you know, that's something that you and I have discussed. I, we feel similarly on is, you know, I lived in Paris for six years and, you know, I was in London for 10 after that. So I was in Europe for a very long time and we moved back to America just last year. And I was really struck by how drinking wine had become something here that like, because I am interested in health and wellness, as are you. And in in circles here, it just is like, wine is bad. Alcohol is bad. Drinking is bad. No, you know, and I... I had been living in a world where, you know, in Paris, we would go have wine with lunch. We would have wine, you know, when we met our friends at night, I, I had thought about it in a way that was very much community led beneficial to my mental health in ways, because it always involved like, you know, relaxing or speaking or connecting with people and, then i came back here and i was like gosh there's so many people in america who think of, of this sort of ritual of drinking wine is something that's inherently very bad for you so we've touched upon things today that are like you know a lot of wine is actually very bad for you there are all these additives there are toxins in it but but getting just back to the idea of like why wine why do we drink wine why do we love wine and how you think of it? And I know you're friends with Dan Butner. my husband and I just finished the Blue Zones and I've been a huge fan of Dan's work for a long time. And I just was so struck that every single community in the Blue Zones drinks wine. Like, and you know, and it, it really was like this recurring theme of the fact that like, I think it was in Icaria or somewhere, but it was like, you know, it was one of the top five pillars of like what he found was a part of people's like health routines. So, so I wanted to just ask you how you speak of it and how you think of wine and how you think of it as a way that's connected to health and well being. Because as you said, I mean, you got into biohacking, you got into new wellness, like this is something that you believe in, but yet you started a wine company. So just at its basic level, I guess, what the art of drinking wine Yeah,
1: it, it, It's super simple. Um, and I drink wine um, <clears throat> occasionally with Dan. In fact, I'm going to see Dan Sunday, this coming Sunday. Uh, we would drink wine more often together, except that our travel schedules are oftentimes divergent.
0: Insane. And, um, <laughs> but
1: um, he is a, an amazing human and also an amazing talent who I'm really privileged to call my friend. And um, so, but, you know, here's here's how I, I think about this topic. Um, and I have some pretty surprising views on it. Um, and wine has been a part of cultural life with humans, in art, religion, um, celebrations of all kind for over nine thousand years. Wine has been a cultural anchor to virtually every part of cultural life. Uniquely, it's been wine, uh, even back to uh, biblical times. You know, it's been uniquely wine. So that being said. Um, you know there is a lot of anti drinking um a lot to the anti drinking movement and there are a few well known podcasters and authors who speak pretty harshly against drinking um and i, I appreciate that i um i, I agree uh, peter atia who does drink uh, at least as of recently and don't know if that'll change. He's become good friends with the really rabid anti-alcohol influencer. Um, and, you know, I, um, I I tend to agree with Peter in this respect, and I talk about this on virtually every podcast that I'm on, and it surprises people to hear me say this. Drinking ethyl alcohol is probably not healthy for humans. That being said, I love drinking wine, and and I, I what we don't know is what, you know, there's as many studies to say that drinking in moderate amounts might be beneficial to you as there are studies that say that it's harmful for you. So again, I don't need to debate the science on whether drinking ethyl alcohol is healthy. I guess probably not. But here's what it does for me that I think is really healthy and that I'm a huge proponent of, is that wine brings me joy in a lot of different ways. And most importantly, it, I, I, just had, I just hosted a reception for 50 of our top customers in New York last night, and I have 50 more for dinner tomorrow night. What it does do is it promotes community. It promotes connection. It promotes love. It's euphoric. Yes. Guilty. I like getting high, right? So, you know, it is, it is, it's not, look, some people shouldn't drink at all. And some people have stopped drinking and alcohol ruins millions of lives every year. Fact, fact, and fact. And if you don't drink today, I'm not suggesting that you start. However, if you like me, and you love wine, and you love the community around it, and you love food and wine, and you love gathering at the dinner table with your friends and family, and banter, and laughter, and joking, and like, I actually become wittier and cuter when I drink wine, right? And so this is awesome. And everybody else I know who drinks with me, the same thing happens to them. And so, you know, life is too short. I'm going to be here 90 years, plus or minus, probably, right? I'm I'm two-thirds of the way through that, right? And so it's like, I, you know, I, of course we have the conversation at my house, not on an infrequent basis. Do you think we should drink less? Yes, probably, but I don't want to, right? Because I like it. <laughs> Everybody I know has this conversation. Every, every regular wine drinker I know believes they probably benefit by drinking a little less, right? But you know what? They don't want to, and I don't either. And so there's, you know, I look, I wear... You know, I wear a whoop and or you know, a ring, and I track you know variables, and I live a quantified life. And sure, some of my some of my quantifications could be improved if I did if I just stopped drinking. But you know what? I like it, and it's fun, and my friends think it's fun, and so I don't hang out with a bunch of non drinkers because they don't hang out with drinkers, right? Yeah. I like drinking wine, so my point of view is if you're going to drink it. I think you should make the best informed choice for your health that you can, right, which includes sugar free, lower alcohol, organically farmed, you know, make these choices that support a healthier drinking experience, a better for you, better for the planet experience. So that's how I think about it. I don't again, I don't need to debate. You know, have a national science debate on whether drinking alcohol is and enhancing my health. I tell you one thing: it makes my life a lot more fun, yeah. right? And uh, and getting naked with wine is a lot more fun.
0: Yeah. And
1: so, so you know, that's just sort of how I think about it. And you know, it's been around for nine thousand years. There's 80 million Americans who drink wine regular, and it's likely to be around for another nine thousand years if the planet survives itself. That I'm more concerned about than than what wine's doing. I'm more concerned about whether the planet will survive itself or not. But anyway, that's, that's, yeah, maybe that answers your question. I'm like Todd fun white, right? Like I love to have fun and wine is oftentimes a part of that accelerated fun. And that's how I think about it.
0: Well, I think, you know, it's funny. And I was really excited to have this conversation because I think something that's missing so much from the climate crisis and it's going to sound so bizarre to say it, but like joy and laughter and fun, like, you know, like, and, and, and that's because it's so depressing and it's so, you know, we are facing a lot of issues and we can't sugarcoat that a lot needs to be done. But if we could you know power up a new generation of wine farmers who are helping capture carbon by doing you know beautiful organic farming helping to get chemicals out of production and out of people's bodies and out of the land like if we can bring an element of joy through for instance the wine industry to this fight like because when i look at like the climate crisis the biodiversity crisis all the the health crisis like Yeah, like the idea of bringing in joy and fun and laughter and lightness. Like, I think there's a huge space for that. And it's maybe lacking at the moment because, you know, a lot of people kind of don't want to get involved with this because they think all they're going to do is be depressed and not enjoy themselves and not have fun. But maybe there's a way for that to kind of come together.
1: You know, Richard at Flamingo Estate, um, you know, talks. Uh, one of his, one of his taglines is, "A house of radical pleasure," right? And, and I think he embodies that, you know, perfectly. And you know, we think of ourselves as hedonist. We love pleasure, right? Um, we just think life is enhanced by having more fun, things that taste better, things that are grown better, better for you, better for the planet. We just think is a radical pr- pleasure, just like he does. Yeah. And and uh, so, yeah, I, I'm a huge fan of Richard and everything that he promotes. And I'm sure we see the world through a similar lens in this regard. But, um, you and know, it's it just
0: it's the same. Alice Waters was our very first. guest. Sure, of course. Same thing. And she literally the amount of time she said pleasure about the food industry and farming like it was uh, I mean, if I counted it, it might have been like 200 times, you know, she was like there is so much pleasure and beauty in eating. An sure. Of and course. Well She's written about and- it
1: extensively. I got another pioneer and leader I have tremendous respect for on so many levels, you know, and, and, um, and again, I, I don't, you know, as I mentioned earlier, I don't take anything away from LVMH because they've been pioneers and leaders and innovators and craftsmen in different ways, just not in a way I want to do. Exactly. Right? Um, Alice has been a leader in, Uh, for women, uh, for children, uh, for, you know, school lunches and uh, edible gardens. And, you know, she's fascinating. I met her a couple of times and think she's lovely. Yeah. Right. It's, it's the people who are cut from this cloth of living this way, all want the same thing or all motivated by the same pleasures, Mm -hmm. you know, and, 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 and fun is one of my great pleasures, but you know, also the taste of wine, the taste of food, cooking, farming, growing, picking, that's all pleasurable. Hiking, being in nature is a, is a pleasure, yeah. right? So I just want to enhance my life with more things that make me happy, right? Yeah. And pleasure is one of them. So it's it's like, I don't think, I think everybody who's in this business, everybody who cares about the same thing we care about, all are kind of centered around the same heart energy of doing better, being better, living better, contributing more, and having more pleasure, right? So, you know, why not? That's the reason I drink the type of wine I do, because it tastes better, and it's more pleasurable.
0: Yeah. Well, I think you guys were kind enough to send me, like, um, a a starter set, I think. And honestly, every bottle, especially the Reds, have been just extraordinary. So... I feel like I'm going to tell people how they can get a small discount, but I have to ask you, Todd, the last question and the question I'm asking everyone to end the podcast with in the series is what is making you feel the most hopeful at the moment? I think,
1: I think there's a, I think there's a a small but rising level of consciousness. um, What we call conscious consumption. I think there's, small, but it's growing. There's hope that more people will become more conscious and giving them just better products is a great place to start by giving them things that taste better. And like what Richard does or what we do by giving people things that elevate their pleasure, causes them to, excuse me, causes them to, you know, to, to, have a rise in consciousness and thoughtfulness and so and i think meditation is helpful with that and you know cold plunges or on the rise you know you you see more and more people caring about their consciousness and so for me i mean that that is a continuing and rising movement it's um so that i I think that's the most hopeful thing is that 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 people are having discussions and people like you are leading discussions around, uh, more conscious consumption.
0: Yeah. Well, thank you for that, Todd. And for anyone listening, um, who is interested in trying dry farm wines, I, do you want to remind us all of how they can get maybe like a nice little offer on their first purchase with you guys?
1: Yeah. It's uh. we So for your podcast guests, we will give them an extra bottle for a penny. So they can get a penny bottle of wine. We never discount our wines and we can't give wine away for free. It's against the law, but we uh, do as a gift of appreciation, give them uh one penny bottle and they can go to your link uh, at dryfarmwines.com forward slash.
0: Um, so R-E-V-E-E-N-V-E-R-T. And we will make sure that's all linked when this podcast comes out. And I, yeah, I've just got to say, I've been enjoying it so much and I can't wait for everyone who's listening to this and wants to try to give it a go. So thank you so much, Todd, for, for taking the time and sharing all that with us. That was a really wonderful conversation.
1: Thank you. Appreciate you having me. Good luck.